Hello and welcome to the fifth of our lecture podcast for conflict and cooperation in international politics. Today we'll be talking about climate change. Now, continuing with our series on contemporary international global challenges and what that means for prospects for conflict or cooperation. So far in the contemporary challenges we've looked at humanitarian crises and intervention nuclear strategy and proliferation last week we looked at terrorism and today we are looking at an issue which has come to the fore in the study of international politics and indeed on the agenda of global politics in an unprecedented fashion over the past decade you know around the time when i started studying international relations about 20 years ago it was very difficult to imagine that a subject like the environment or climate change could be anything other than a niche specialism of a certain kind but i think the scale of challenge that climate change poses not just to international politics but to global polity indeed to mankind or humanity as a whole is such that it has and quite rightly become a very important and pressing challenge and how the international system deals with this particular challenge may well determine the futures not just of our own generations but of many that are yet to come so today i want to talk about climate change and as always start by giving you a little bit of background but then also use this as an opportunity to see what of the conceptual toolkit that we acquired in the first half of the course can actually help us make sense of the various kinds of challenges that climate change poses to international politics and to everyone indeed i'm going to divide today's lecture into three chunks in the first part i want to talk a little bit about what we understand by climate change itself now this is perhaps of common knowledge many of you will be quite familiar but i thought it would still be useful just to make sure that we are all on the same page as far as uh, understanding what exactly is it that we are talking about climate change then i want to spend some time going over the history of various kinds of international negotiations that have happened around climate change now over almost 30 years uh as with other topics that i've covered some of this history will be broad brush think of it as potted account but i think it's still useful because we need this kind of historical empirical knowledge before we are able to understand these things from a conceptual theoretical perspective as well and finally in the last third of the class i really want to focus a little bit more on how exactly does ir theory and the various concepts that we've learned illuminate the challenges that climate change poses to us in the domain of international politics yeah so we'll begin with the background talk about the history of international negotiations and then wrap up with a more conceptually oriented discussion let's start with climate change itself climate change as you all undoubtedly know is the current rapid warming of the earth's climate caused by human activity scientists and scholars fear that if climate change is left unchecked 
and they believe that current responses aren't doing what we need to do in order to check it, then it could pose an unprecedented threat to human civilization itself and indeed of the ecosystems that exist on this planet. Climate change, as I said, is has the dimension of warming, but also of human activity. And it is this nexus, really, that has come to the fore with much greater clarity thanks to the research that has happened over the last 15 years or so. These days, uh, much of the debate about climate change tends to be on whether we should understand the era in which we are living as Anthropocene, which is to say a period when human activity is really capable of making changes at the planetary level altogether. There are arguments about whether we should think of it as Anthropocene, as in changes wrought by human activity itself, or is it more really capitalism, particularly a form of global capitalism that has been unleashed, certainly starting from the 18th century onwards, but has now acquired dimensions and is become a part of the aspiration of the lives of billions of people across the planet. Are we living through the capitalist scene? Or is it the Anthropocene? These are the kinds of debates that scholars uh, tend to have. And international relations scholars don't have very much to contribute to that particular debate. But I think they do have a lot to tell us about what exactly the challenge of climate change is. So the world has been experiencing changes in climate, which has been affecting millions of lives. I think now, especially over the last 12 to 15 years, uh, there has been so many instances of various kinds of natural disasters, changes, climatic variations in patterns of ecology, uh, that it is increasingly becoming clear that we are living through a period when the impact of climate change is already palpable. It is not something out there in the future. Though, if things continue on the current trend line, what may lie ahead of us might be something too dangerous even to contemplate. For instance, we've seen examples already of things like bleaching of coral reefs. Uh, the volume of sea ice in the Arctic uh, has been dipping. You know, there's been an actual increase in the number of natural disasters like wildfires, uh, droughts, floods. You only need to think of what's been happening in, say, Australia just this past few months or in California over the last couple of years. Uh, we've witnessed some massive migration of various kinds of species uh, during this period all of which uh, scholars and students of the environment believe are directly or indirectly related to the challenge of climate change. Now, what exactly do we mean when we're talking about climate change? Uh, obviously, there are a myriad of phenomena, various kinds of effects that are palpable. For our purposes, I think it is important to take a slightly narrow view of what exactly is it that is of concern to us. And this is really about greenhouse gases. Now, for those of you who don't have much of a background in the sciences, greenhouse effect is a word that I'm sure you've heard, uh, but it's just useful to lay out what exactly we're talking about here. The idea is that there are certain gases in the Earth's atmosphere, like CO2, carbon dioxide, methane, water vapor, etc., that allow sunlight to pass through but then they also prevent heat from escaping back from Earth out into space. 
So effectively, these gases act very much like glass in a greenhouse. Now, in some ways, without this greenhouse effect, the Earth would be uninhabitable to most forms of life. Nevertheless, by changing the balance of gases in the atmosphere, human beings have increased greenhouse effect, resulting in the rising temperatures that we now see. Now, the most significant increases are in carbon dioxide. According to scientists, there is now more than a third, sorry, according to scientists, there is now over a third more carbon dioxide in our atmosphere than there was before the Industrial Revolution began around the year 1800. Similarly, the other very significant you know, gas that we've seen whose increase contributes to the greenhouse effect is methane. Methane is actually a more potent greenhouse gas, but then it remains in the atmosphere only for a decade or so, whereas CO2, carbon dioxide, lasts for about 100 years or more. So, even if we stopped all kinds of CO2 and methane emissions from human activity, the reality is that the Earth will continue to heat up from the gases that have already been emitted. Now, what are the main causes of increased CO2 in the atmosphere? There are two broad categories of things that scientists and scholars who study these things point out. The first is burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas. And the second is deforestation and other changes in land use that released stored CO2 and methane. Now, burning fossil fuels is something that all of us instinctively understand about what exactly the nature of the problem is. But deforestation and changes in land use is actually an intriguing and important thing for us to remember, even as much of our discussion will focus on burning fossil fuels. Now, there was an IPCC report on IPCC standing for the Intergovernmental Plan, uh, Panel on Climate Change, which is the main body which looks at, uh, you know, scientifically sort of documenting uh, climate change. So the IPCC's report on climate change and land use of August 2019, which is just a few months ago, states that it will be impossible to keep global temperatures at acceptable levels unless there is also a significant, indeed a step change in the way that the world produces food and manages land. Agriculture, forestry, other land use produces almost a quarter of the greenhouse gas emissions. What's more, about half of all methane, which as I said is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, come from cattle and rice fields, while deforestation and removal of peatlands causes further erosion, further increase in the level of carbon emissions. So in a sense, the problem of climate change is not just to be conceived of as one of burning fossil fuels, though that remains the most visible manifestation of it, but the way that we use land, the way that we carry out agriculture, and the way that we think about forestry, all of it also has very significant implications for climate change. So this is what I have to say about climate change as a background. Now, let's talk a little bit about the international negotiations which have happened regarding climate change over the past few years. 
Now, as I said, climate change as an issue has come to the fore, particularly in the study of international relations, but more broadly in public discourse over the last decade and a half. But it is fair to say that there has been a recognition of the kinds of challenges that climate change poses and the need for some coordinated international action, international cooperation, in other words, in order to tackle this particular problem. Now, the first international summit where climate change as an issue was discussed was the famous Rio Earth Summit of 1992. Now, in this summit, negotiations took place based on the first report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. And these negotiations led to something called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is also abbreviated as UNFCC. Now, the Framework Convention on Climate Change sets a long-term objective of avoiding dangerous human interference with the climate system. Towards that end, the agreement which emerged in the Rio summit put in place a series of important markers. First, it commits all nations to take steps to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. Second, it establishes the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. This recognizes that countries vary in their contributions to climate change and capacities to address it, so their obligations will also vary. And third, it commits developed countries to assisting developing countries in reducing emissions and in coping with the impact of climate change. So just to reiterate, three points which come in. The first is that the UNFCC effectively gets all states to accept that they will take steps to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. Now, this is a very important point because mitigation, which is to say that reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions in absolute levels is seen as a very important step in tackling the problem of climate change. So mitigation and commitment to mitigation is the first one. The second important principle is that of common but differentiated responsibility. I think this is perhaps the most important phrase in all the international climate change negotiations that have happened. Now, what it says is that the international community, which is to say all states are in some ways have a common responsibility in dealing with the problem of climate change, but they have differentiated responsibilities. Now, this common but differentiated responsibilities effectively accepts that certain countries have a greater historical role and contribution in the accumulated emission of various greenhouse gases. Now, these countries were obviously the countries which first got on to the path of industrialization and of a carbon or energy-based economy. Now, these countries today would constitute much of what we think of as the developed world, particularly in Europe 
and the United States of America, Japan, etc. But in the first instance, it is those countries, particularly the developed Western economies, which first got on to the bandwagon of industrial revolution. Now, what this accepts is that since these countries have contributed over the centuries and decades to our accumulated stock of greenhouse gases, in some ways they have a greater responsibility in order to be able to deal with this particular problem, which is to say that they have to take stronger measures for mitigation and, as the third point says, they have to help developing countries in reducing emissions and in coping with the impact of climate change itself. So their historical obligation is recognized and responsibility is taken for what they will do in the current moment. right? And this is a point that developing countries have emphasized as being central to the entire challenge of climate change. The American uh, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman you know, has this nice way of explaining what exactly is the perspective of the developing countries when it comes to common but differentiated responsibility and why they want to stick to this principle. He says developing countries are basically saying that you know you developing countries you know you guys got together at breakfast you had breakfast then you continued on to lunch you continued on for drinks in the evening and then we the developing countries joined you for dinner but when the bill comes you say hey everybody's got to split it equally how is that fair don't you guys who've been around for much longer and have contributed to this mounting bill have to foot a greater share of it right so friedman's anecdote effectively captures what is at the heart of this argument about common and differentiated responsibilities which is really an art argument really about fairness about justice and we'll come to that when i talk about the kind of conceptual issues in play with climate change in the latter half of the class so these were the three things that the unfcc really uh, got them mitigation of greenhouse gases common but differentiated responsibility and obligation to help developing countries uh, in reducing emissions and meeting the challenge of climate change now the Convention also introduced a very important separation of the various countries or parties to this particular agreement into two categories. And these were countries which were placed under two annexures to the agreement through the UNFCC, the Annex 1 and the non-Annex 1 countries. The Annex 1 countries consisted of the developed countries now approximately equivalent to what you would think of as the oecd countries or the organization of economic cooperation and development which is a grouping of the most developed economies so the oecd membership as it ran around 1990 thereabouts plus a few economies which were in transition so the annex one effectively is of the most advanced developed economies whereas all the others fall into the category of not being under Annex 1. Now, the UNFCC contains a legally binding requirement on all parties to take measures to mitigate climate change. 
but there are no mechanisms to ensure that it happens so in a sense the convention says that there is a legal obligation on everybody but there is no way of enforcing it so there is no clear enforcement mechanism it is only what the fcc offers is only a, as a quantified goal is a non-binding target for annex one countries as a whole to return to the their emissions to the levels of 1990 by the year 2000 right so there is a certain kind of a target there is a requirement that annex one countries which is to say the developed countries will pair back to 1990 levels of emission by the year 2000 which is to say in the next eight years or so now as i said the main problem with the unfcc was that there was no enforcement mechanism no mechanism to ensure that any of this would happen and there was no way of making sure that commitments which were undertaken were binding and actually stuck onto the parties as a whole now these negotiations continued and in the first convention of parties or cop and there are going to be a series of cops that we will now come across the first convention of parties cop one is held in 1995 and in cop one the countries which had signed up to the unfcc decided to speed up their efforts to meet the problem of climate change by launching negotiations towards a first what they called as a sub-agreement now they agreed that this new agreement would be in the first instance consistent with the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities which as i said was you know for for the next few uh, rounds of these climate change negotiations would be the most important principle so the new agreement uh, would in a manner that was consistent with common but differentiated responsibilities establish binding targets and timetables for reducing developed country emissions but no new commitments would be put on place for developing countries right now this particular idea that we need to have a clear distinction between what we ask and how much we bind the developed countries to any new agreement that is being negotiated under the UNFCC whereas no new commitments would be placed on the developing economies had attracted a bit of a backlash from the developed countries themselves now the United States emerged as the center for many of these kinds of domestic discussions around what exactly is happening in the international domain as far as climate change is concerned now the u.s senate actually adopted a resolution it is a non-binding resolution but nevertheless it was a resolution uh, which rejected this premise saying that the agreement should also include greenhouse gas limits for developing countries so in a sense they said that even if we notionally accept the common but differentiated responsibilities framework we still need to have new commitments which will be binding on developing countries as well right so so there you see that already by the time the uh, cop one gets underway there is a challenge of how do you sell various kinds of international climate change obligations domestic constituencies and what is happening in the united states is uh, an important example because the united states is also the most 
powerful economy. It's the largest um, emitter of greenhouse gases at that point of time. Now, the next milestone in the story of the evolution of international negotiations is COP3, the Convention of Parties 3, which was held in 1997, which led to something known as the Kyoto Protocol. Now, the Kyoto Protocol provided for the first time very clear accounting rules, uh, a firm aggregate reduction target for greenhouse gas emissions. It also laid down legally binding country by country quantified commitments and compliance provisions. Right? So the Kyoto Protocol actually puts a lot of things down in very clear terms. Now the Kyoto Protocol also introduced an international carbon market mechanism to help achieve mitigation at least cost, notably the innovative clean development mechanism. Now, this international carbon me market mechanism was introduced largely at the insistence of the United States. Now, what this agreement did was to incorporate a series of flexible or think of it as market-based mechanisms, which enabled developed economies to use different forms of emission trading to achieve their targets more cost-effectively. So, in a sense, uh, you could bring about something like a market for emissions and countries could trade. Those who were you know, undershooting could effectively give their quota to those who were overshooting. And that kind of a market mechanism would enable them to achieve their targets in a much more cost-effective manner. Now, the Kyoto Protocol was also had a tighter and more detailed specification of Annex 1 obligations. Uh, it particularly gave, it tried at least, to implement the principle of getting the developed countries to take the lead, so to speak, right, which is part of the original UNFCC kind of framework. But the Kyoto Protocol was obviously a hot potato in the United States domestically. President Bill Clinton never submitted the Kyoto Protocol to the US Senate for its ratification. Uh, this is just a reminder that the United States requires every international treaty signed by the executive or the president to be ratified by the Senate. So Clinton foresaw the degree of opposition that the Kyoto Protocol would encounter with domestic constituencies in the Senate and so never even submitted the protocol to the Senate. Now, his successor, President George W. Bush, announced openly that the United States would not ratify the Kyoto Protocol. So that opens up a divide between the United States and many other developed countries which believed that the problem of climate change actually required them to be willing to continue to take the lead and push international negotiations forward. These other countries proceeded to ratify the Kyoto Protocol and it enters into force in 2005. But by that time, the Kyoto Protocol is effectively far less important to the real outcome of mitigating against climate change than what its original negotiators had envisaged in 1997. The initial emissions target had extended only till 2012. And, it went, and by the time it was 
and by when it came to negotiating a second round through 2020 several other developed countries declined to go along right because by the time it was very clear that the united states was taking a very different kind of attack on this thing now technically speaking the kyoto protocol is in force even now but the reality is that its targets cover only a very small fraction of global emissions and there is absolutely no expectation that the kyoto protocol is going to become the vehicle for any kind of future targets or any kind of future action as far as climate change is concerned. So there was a period when the climate negotiations effectively were operating along a couple of different tracks. But subsequently, we enter into a third phase of climate change negotiations. Now, the UNFCC along with the principles on which it was built, as well as principles that informed the Kyoto Protocol remained valid. But it increasingly became clear that they could not really chart a way forward as far as international cooperation on action for climate change was concerned. There were many problems. The most important of which was that the stabilization goal, at what levels do we want to stabilize, uh, was not quantified, either as a temperature limit or greenhouse gas concentration levels. Further, the absence of the United States, which was the largest emitter, made even Annex 1 commitments under the UNFCC incomplete. Now, more important for the future, Projections of global emissions showed that by the end of the Kyoto Protocol's first commitment period, China would have overtaken the United States as the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. These projections also showed that developing countries in aggregate would also have overtaken Annex 1 countries, which is to say the developing economies and would be the dominant source of most of the emissions growth up to 2050 and beyond. Now, this was a very important feature which came onto play, which is to say that while the older UNFCC was built on this notion that there was common but differentiated responsibility, which is to say that countries which had historic role and responsibility for uh, greenhouse gas emissions had to bear the burden of dealing with climate change as well and had to help the developing countries uh, to deal with it. But once the UNFCC discussions went further through to the Kyoto Protocol, it already became clear that giving teeth to the common but differentiated responsibility principle and getting the developed countries to actually act on it was more difficult than um, the UNFCC had envisioned. And the difficulty primarily stemmed from the interaction between domestic politics and international commitments, uh, which happened. And the United States, as I said, was the most important uh, example of that particular tension. But these projections, which started coming on stream now, and which suggested that China and other developing countries, including India, will 
in aggregate at some point overtake all the developed economies as sources of emission then changes the political dynamic almost entirely because now it gives an argument for many groups within developed countries and economies to say that if the developing countries are the ones that are currently contributing most to the problem then shouldn't the polluters pay shouldn't why should we be held asymmetrically responsible for our historical contribution while those who are currently contributing are let off very lightly under the current sets of arrangements so the political balance really starts becoming much more polarized around this developed versus developing country axis the absence of the united states already starts inhibiting a number of other countries which were listed under annex 1 of the unfcc and without the united states these countries were not really willing to take on asymmetric burdens but the developing countries also complained of an imbalance they saw the developed countries or the annex 1 parties as increasing the demands on developing countries while neither demonstrating sufficient ambition over their own commitments nor recognizing the importance of adaptation finance technology transfer to developing countries right so the developing countries argument is that even as more obligations were being passed on to them in the argument that they were the ones who in current time were contributing more the developed countries themselves were in some ways not that willing to take on further obligations and they were not willing to recognize that the developing countries needed a lot more assistance particularly financial and technological in order to adapt uh, to the problem of climate change now there is a bit of a parallel here with the kinds of arguments that we saw when we discussed the nuclear non proliferation treaty right so some countries which did not want to sign on to the npt like india said that the npt is a discriminatory treaty right on the one hand those countries which are nuclear haves are not recognizing their obligations towards disarmament and on the other hand everyone else is told that listen you just can't acquire um, this kind of stuff and you see a similar but of course somewhat different uh, but but similar dynamic playing out in the context of the climate change negotiations as well where the sharp division between developed and developing countries comes to the fore even as these new projections come on stream now as a result of all of this uh, there was a action plan released after a cop in bali called the 2007 bali action plan now the bali action plan effectively blurred the dichotomy between annex 1 and other countries which refers to developed and developing countries yeah so the bali action plan basically saw a way of slurring over or making that particular dichotomy much more blurred though of course the kyoto track of solely annex 1 commitments continued independently but as i said the kyoto track was getting more and more irrelevant to the real story of climate change negotiations now although the 
developed countries did not make this point quite explicitly there was a strong desire amongst most of them which is to say the annex one countries for a legally binding outcome under the convention track now the most of these countries wanted a legally binding accord effectively to bind the united states as well as to include the emerging economies right so so for most developed economies there was a twofold kind of a challenge one is how to create an agreement which will bring the united states into the fold again but at the same time will also impose uh, obligations on emerging economies and would paper over this kind of very sharp divide between annex 1 oecd countries uh, developed economies and the rest so the bali action plan was to be adopted as an agreement at cop 15 which was held in copenhagen in 2009 and this was one of the most dramatic sort of climate change summits uh, in our recent memory more than a hundred world leaders came to copenhagen for the summit there were also a lot of other ngos activists uh, it, it was actually quite a memorable um, event for people who lived through it uh, but the country negotiators were unable to overcome their differences eventually some kind of a political solution was adopted so president barack obama and other leaders stepped in to hammer out something called a copenhagen accord which was not formally adopted by the cop it was a political agreement nevertheless it reflected significant progress which had been made on several fronts and it's important to just list out what those were first uh, the copenhagen accord set a goal of limiting global temperature increases to two degrees celsius it called on all countries to put forward mitigation pledges it established broad terms for reporting and verifying countries' actions. Developed con developing countries' actions in particular would be subject to a form of peer review through international consultations and analysis. So there isn't a strong enforcement mechanism, but nevertheless, there is some form of a collective review. The Copenhagen uh, Accord also set a goal of mobilizing a hundred billion dollars a year by 2020 in public and private financing for developing countries to meet the challenge of climate change and it called for the establishment of a new green climate fund so in a sense while no formal agreement was adopted by the cop the copenhagen accord as a political accord registered progress along several fronts now the core political bargain at the heart of this accord was really a two-way deal between developing countries accepting mitigation but at the same time getting access to long-term financing right so in a sense that is the trade-off and the bargain which is at the heart of the copenhagen accord now the following year which is in 2010 at cop 16 in cancun the countries adopted the Cancun agreements which effectively formalized the most important elements of the Copenhagen Accord under the UNFCC itself 
the Cancun agreements were regarded as an interim arrangement through to 2020 and various parties left the door open for further negotiations towards a legally binding successor to the Kyoto Protocol. After a couple of other detours, this leads to COP21 in Paris and the landmark 12th December 2015 Paris Agreement. The agreement uh, in Paris represented a hybrid, a combination really of the top-down Kyoto approach and the bottom-up approach of Copenhagen and the Cancun agreements, which is to say on the one hand, there were kind of attempts to dictate what should be done, but on the other hand, accept that countries would come up with various ways of assessment and adhering to various targets, uh, which the Copenhagen and Cancun models effectively uh, held up. Now, the Paris Agreement establishes common binding procedural commitments for all countries, but leaves it to each country to decide its non-binding, nationally determined contribution. Right, So that's a, a good way of sort of tapering over some of these problems. The agreement also establishes an enhanced transparency framework to track individual countries' actions and it calls on countries to strengthen their nationally determined contributions every five years. Now, the hybridity of this was important not just to overcome the impasse between the developed and the developing countries, but also to make international commitments more saleable in a domestic con uh, context. And given its hybrid kind of legal character, Barack Obama, in fact, was able to ratify the Paris Agreement through executive action without seeking Senate advice and consent, right? So in a sense, as you recall, in the past, uh, for instance, Bill Clinton balked at the thought of putting the Kyoto Protocol to Senate for ratification, knowing full well what would be the kind of uh, political resistance to it. But Obama, because uh, you know this is an agreement which is not fully in the nature of an international agreement, was able to get it ratified purely through a presidential signature uh, without having to go through uh, the hoops of uh, Senate confirmation. So in a sense, the agreement was designed and conceived of as a way also of overcoming this kind of domestic international kind of dichotomy which existed in several countries. Uh, so the agreement comes into force in late 2016 and uh, you know subsequent rules to be adopted were to be developed and so on but then uh, then we had Donald Trump getting elected as president of the United States and Trump has uh, you know both during his campaign and much earlier uh, been part of a political constituency in the United States which said that climate change was a hoax and that there was no need to kind of take it as such a serious problem or accept various kinds of economic and other burdens uh, on the part of countries like the United States uh, and had made it a point even during his campaign to say that he would walk back from the Paris Agreement. Uh, so in June 2017, Trump uh, was true to his word and announced his decision to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. Now, there was a built-in clause for a certain period after which only countries could kind of pull out. So it's only on 4th of November 2019 that 
Trump administration formally gave notice of withdrawal. Now, the withdrawal comes into effect a full year after the notice has been given, which is to say on 4th November 2020. Interestingly enough, that is going to be the day after the presidential election, which will determine whether Donald Trump remains in office or whether Joe Biden comes into the White House. So at this point of time, the international negotiations on climate change are really suffering from a lack of American presence and leadership. Several other countries, the European Union, the United States, uh, sorry, the European Union, the Chinese and the Japanese governments, as well as a range of other countries, including India, have committed to taking and going forward with the Paris Agreement and its commitments. But without the United States uh, being around to provide leadership and to ensure that enough international resources are mobilized, especially to meet the extraordinarily ambitious financial uh, objectives which were set out in the Paris Agreement, it is going to be almost impossible to meet them on time. So this US presidential election is going to determine in many ways whether we're going to see more international cooperation in dealing with climate change, or is there going to be a rift and a discord, and consequently an issue that threatens all of humanity is going to be something that the international system is unable to really cope. Okay, now let's look at a series of conceptual issues that might help us understand why this issue of international cooperation to deal with climate change has proved to be so difficult to accomplish and to actually implement. Now, at a fundamental level, the issue of climate change illuminates a problem that we are all familiar with almost from the first class in this course, which is of anarchy. Now, we defined anarchy as the opposite of hierarchy which is to say that in the absence of a world government all states in the international system are technically juridically legally speaking sovereign and equal entities they are not equal in terms of their capabilities and capacities but they are placed similarly as far as the system and the structure of international politics is concerned so we say that international system is anarchic. Now this is now pretty old hat to all of you. What we also recall is that cooperation under conditions of anarchy is a particularly problematic issue in straightforward conceptual terms, right? Irrespective of what is the issue in play or how many actors there are, cooperations under conditions of anarchy is actually quite difficult to achieve. In one of the classes, I had explained this point to you using the famous example of the prisoner's dilemma, which as I said, is a particular kind of a thought experiment and pattern of behavior, which tells us why an cooperation under conditions of anarchy can be difficult. So let me just go over that once again because that will help you understand some of the conceptual issues involved in the subsequent discussion as well. So the classic prisoner's dilemma situation is something along these lines. 
there are two thieves who have robbed a bank and they have been arrested by the police call them a and b now a and b are being interrogated by the police in two separate rooms they cannot communicate with each other the authorities which is to say the police has no other witness to the crime and can only prove the case if they can convince at least one of the two thieves a or b to betray the other and testify to the crime so each thief therefore is effectively faced with the choice of cooperating with his accomplice and remaining silent or to defect and testify against his colleague now if both of them remain silent then the authorities can only convict them on a lesser charge say of a loitering or a break in or something like that but not for the robbery per se because they don't have direct evidence right so if both remain silent then the authorities will be able to convict them on a lesser crime which may mean one year in jail for each of them now if one testifies while the other remains silent then the one who testifies will go scot free while the other will get a punishment of full 3 years now if both testify against the other then each will get a shorter period in jail which is to say something like 2 years for being jointly but partly responsible for the crime right so the choices are if you both remain silent then both will get only one year if one remains silent while the other does not the one who remains silent will get scot free while the other will get a maximum punishment of 3 years but if both testify then they will share the punishment so end up with say 2 years each now what the prisoner's dilemma tells us is that in theory both of them should cooperate with each other and remain silent right because that's the best thing for them that's the best scenario they can each get away with just one year in jail if they remain silent but in practice because they cannot communicate with each other because they do not know and there is uncertainty about what the other might be thinking each one effectively thinks of his choices this way a will think that if i remain silent and the other which is to say b actually rats out and testifies then i am going to serve 3 years and that guy is going to get away whereas if i testify against him then there is a possibility that i may either go scot free or that if both of us testify against each other then we'll get 2 years each so the choice effectively then becomes one where each of the thieves feels that he would be better off betraying the other rather than staying silent so in a sense the problem is the absence of cooperation and uncertainty with each other about each other's intentions which then leads each of them independently to take actions which actually end them up in a suboptimal position had neither of them spoken out and both had kept quiet 
they will have just gotten one year in jail. Now, the most likely outcome of the prisoner's dilemma is that both of them will get two years each because each will think the same way and take exactly the same action, which is that of sneaking on the other or uh, testifying against the other. So this is what the prisoner's dilemma tells you, which is to say that in structures where there is no overarching authority to tell both of them to do something or where they cannot fully know and are uncertain and unsure of what the other person might be thinking, then instead of cooperation, both of them will end up in situations that are actually much more suboptimal and much less optimal than what they would have done had they been able to communicate with each other or had a third party telling them what to do. So that is your case of a prisoner's dilemma, which illustrates the general problem of what you might think of as a problem of cooperation under conditions of anarchy. Now, there is another variant or another way of thinking about the same problem, which takes it beyond just a two-person kind of scenario. And we call this the free rider problem. Now, let me give you another hypothetical example. Let us assume that you all, students of Ashoka University, are extremely unhappy with the administration for something. Let's say the quality of food that is being served on campus. And all of you decide that on a Friday evening, you know, there's going to be a mass demonstration and protest outside the sort of main administrative block where you will have a chance to convey your dissatisfaction to the powers that be. Now, the free rider problem effectively is, says that getting together enough people to actually sign up to a protest and show up is something of a challenge because each of you may well be faced with the choice of saying, listen, I go to that protest and I demonstrate my solidarity with everyone else. But in so doing, you know, I may end up missing whatever fun activity that I planned for Friday evening, you know, whatever Netflix season that I wanted to get through. Instead, I have to stand outside, you know, for God knows how many hours. You may have other considerations uh, saying, oh, if I show up to a protest, you know, do you think the powers that be might actually end up targeting me at some other point? Yeah. So you may have all kinds of considerations about alternatives to showing up for the protest. But at the same time, you will also think, and this is what the free rider problem is, that in any case, enough number of people are going to show up for the protest. And if the authorities actually agree to meet your demands, then the demands are met. So irrespective of whether you as an individual show up for the protest or not, it's quite likely that you can reap the benefit of getting the demand met. In other words, you can free ride this situation. Now, this is called the free rider problem. And free rider problem is a problem of what you define as collective action, right? And again, it is a problem of collective action under conditions where nobody can dictate terms to you, right? So the student government, etc., is only in a position to exhort you to show up for something. They cannot lay down the law to you. So in that sense, the free rider problem is another example of the 
problem of cooperation under anarchy. And the free rider problem effectively gets to the heart of one of the major issues with climate change, particularly when it comes to things like mitigation actions, right? And the free rider problem, uh, remember, is also has a link to various kinds of issues of uncertainty when it comes to the question of climate change. So one of the readings this week, you have a piece by the American political scientist and IR scholar Robert Cohen, that's K-E-O-H-A-N-E. -E. So Rob, uh, Robert Cohen's piece basically talks about, you know, various kinds of options to deal with climate change. And it when he says when it comes to mitigation, that there is a classic free rider problem with mitigation because everyone would benefit unconditionally regardless of whether they or their country made any contribution to solving the problem. What's more, reducing the use of fossil fuels is costly, you know, so everyone has incentives to delay acting, hoping that others will solve the problem for them, right? So that's your classic collective action problem. You do not know whether your individual action is going to make any material difference to the outcome. And if it is unlikely to be making a material difference, then you might as well sit back, enjoy your evening, and hope that whatever your demands are are getting met. Similarly, if you're a country and you're saying that, listen, here are all these kinds of legally binding obligations for cutting back on greenhouse gas emissions that we have to take, all of which means that costs are being imposed on our economy and on our people, then you may say that, listen, why should we be the first ones to go ahead and do this? Let others do it. If the problem does get solved or gets managed, then we will anyway benefit from it, right? Secondly, there is a problem of uncertainty alongside the problem of uh, free rider. And the problem of uncertainty is also a general feature of cooperation under anarchy, just as in the prisoner's dilemma thing. No state which is even minded to go forward and meet its commitments can be absolutely sure that other states are going to do that. What if other states are thinking similarly? Yeah, it's a classic case of strategic interaction. Your decision depends on what you think others will decide. And in thinking about what others will decide, you know that they will be thinking about your decision. So strategic situations are situations of interdependent decision taking. So if you are not sure, and if you think that, listen, I can free ride out this at least for a while, and if others, if you know that others might be thinking along the same way, then what incentive do you have to let others free ride on you? Hardly any, right? So that's a kind of a classic problem of free riding and uncertainty, a problem of cooperation, which bedevils many attempts at meeting mitigation uh, kind of challenges in the context of um, the what am I think of as the climate change agreements of various kinds. So which is why you needed, you know, strong legally binding frameworks, but then states are not willing to accept strong legally binding frameworks with strong monitoring or enforcement mechanisms. Uh, you know, law enforcement mechanisms, what does all that remind you of? It reminds you of a state or a government. And that's exactly what we don't have in the international domain. We do have something like international law, which as we've discussed has its characteristics, but it is still very different from national legal systems and national enforcement systems, right? So, so the problem of free riding is a general problem 
of climate change. So any climate change agreement which is being devised will have to think about how this problem can be uh, dealt with. And one of the most um, interesting arguments to deal with the problem of free riding comes from the great economist Eleanor Ostrom. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. Um, thankfully, not the only woman. Now we have others. Uh, but the Eleanor Ostrom uh, really was a scholar who spent a lot of time working on collective action problems. And I have a paper which is uh, from her work for the World Bank, which is assigned to you for this class in the recommended readings. It's a longish one. Uh, it's challenging. But I would recommend at least you take a look at the introduction and the conclusion just to get a sense of how a scholar who has spent all her life thinking about collective action problems and so on can do it. And Eleanor Ostrom's claim to fame really was that she uh, you know, looked at one particular form of collective action, which is known as the tragedy of the commons, which is to say that if you have a common piece of land and everybody has the incentive, say, to acquire a cow and there are more cows grazing that land, then over a period of time, the, the commons is going to turn into some kind of a wasteland. Right? So the tragedy of the commons was seen as a major problem. And Eleanor Ostrom, uh, through extraordinary work over spanning several decades, showed how various kinds of communities and groups of people in real life actually evolve various kinds of community norms, practices, regimes, which allow them to deal with the problem of uh, commons. And in effect, the tragedy of the commons can be and has been averted in real life. So it's, it's not as gloomy a picture as the theory might lead you to. And in this paper, Ostrom argues that efforts to reduce greenhouse gases are a class of collective action problem. And she says that just as other communities have addressed other collective action problems, uh, these have to be addressed at multiple scales and multiple levels, right? So, so Ostrom is, is, a, is a great proponent of this idea of multi-level governance, which has really taken a strong hold now in the way that we think about uh, international architectures for dealing with climate change, right? And uh, a polycentric approach, she argues, has, you know, has the advantage, which is to say that it encourages various kinds of efforts, experimental uh, approaches at multiple levels which then leads to the development of methods for assessing costs and benefits of particular strategies which are adopted in one ecosystem, whether they can be transposed to another. And she argues that you know, building a strong commitment to finding uh, various ways of reducing individual emissions is an important element for how we cope with this problem, right? And also how we get others to take responsibility. Uh, and all of this, she suggests, can be best and most effectively undertaken in a series of small and medium scale governance units that are effectively linked to each other, not necessarily through some kind of a hierarchy, which may not be available, but through information networks and various forms of monitoring. So uh, Ostrom's kind of polycentric approach is one very good way of saying that once we recognize that this is a collective action problem, we don't necessarily have to throw up our hands, but what we need to do is to think more clearly. And Ostrom actually says in the paper that you know climate change is a problem at multiple scales and levels. So why should we expect to have 
a solution which is that much simpler in its architecture. So I think it's an interesting, very important paper by a very great scholar. Uh, please do take a look at it uh, and try and at least discuss the main points of it uh, in your discussion sections. So the free rider problem is uh, one very uh, important manifestation. Apart from you know things like say just um, thinking about you know mitigation, it also has implications for other kinds of things, right? You know, there's a lot of talk about saying, oh, we should move away from greenhouse gases to other kinds of cleaner energy infrastructure, etc. But the question of investing in those and bearing the expense again raises the problem of saying that states will have this feeling that listen if we can free ride it or at least delay our commitments we might actually end up benefiting in some ways so so thinking about the free rider problem seriously is one of the most important things uh, as far as climate change is concerned the second conceptual kind of issue that is important is something that we've discussed in the uh, kind of the historical uh, overview of climate change negotiations which is what scholars call a two-level problem of the relationship between domestic politics and international commitments, right? And we've already seen how various kinds of domestic political uh, considerations will in some ways impede cooperation at international levels. Now, uh, this is particularly a problem because it kind of in some ways will exacerbate the problem of uh, free riding, right? So. If you are, if you think of leaders, say in democracies, particularly, uh, you know, they may be loath to impose costs on their electorate because climate change is a problem which, you know, you could argue is a problem for all of humanity, etc. But the reality is that, you know, the ones which will be most affected with it are going to be subsequent generations. So how are you going to convince your current voting population that they have to take and accept actions and measures? in ways uh, that take into account the interests of those who are not yet born, right? And all our standard kind of ways of thinking about democratic politics and voting behavior, et cetera, suggest that these kinds of um, actions might be difficult, right? So, so the domestic political angle is actually quite tricky, particularly for a lot of democracies to be able to um, take it on board, right? So so the, uh, the two-way, two-level problem in effect uh, exacerbates the free rider problem and makes it a much more difficult thing, which is why Ostrom's point about saying that we need to think about it at multiple levels is very important because she in fact urges us to go even below the level of states uh, and, and to look at it in uh, as a multiple scale and levels problem. Okay, so free riding, cooperation under anarchy, two level problems, the third, I think, important thing for us to remember is that there is a straightforward relationship between the kinds of sacrifices and, you know, costs that countries have to accept in order to meet climate change and what their standing is and will be in international politics, right? Now, if you go by the kind of realist premise that, you know, or neo-realist, structural realist premise that the most important thing is, you know, what is your relative power in the international system, then actions to deal with climate change will definitely be assessed against these kinds of power considerations. 
think about it this way. Why are a lot of developing countries resistant to allowing the developed countries to impose equal burdens or to get away lightly or not to commit strongly to various kinds of things? The answer is simple. Now, if developing countries today forswear the use of you know, things like coal for generation of power in significant numbers or accept various kinds of costs, now effectively they have to agree that their development trajectory will neither follow the same path nor reach the same level as those of the developed countries which have already done all the polluting deeds that they wanted to in the past and accumulated wealth as countries with high per capita uh, GDP for instance whereas the developing countries can never quite make it there and if they cannot become rich then their ability to translate their wealth into power of various kinds think of military power as a simple example right countries which are have higher per capita gdp will naturally be the countries which have more resources to be able to acquire military power even as they keep their populations prosperous and happy right so in a sense accepting the demands of climate change will mean that countries also accept that they may be costs to their development plans and trajectories and indeed their conception of what economic development constitutes now there is a lot of argument made by scholars on climate change saying that if countries like india and china effectively insist that they must have the same kind of standard of living that the advanced developed world today has you know with all of everything that goes with it uh, in terms of consumption, uh, use of fossil fuels, uh, you know, vehicles, and so on, then climate change is just going to get totally out of hand. So, in a sense, dealing with climate change effectively requires these countries, the developing countries, large developing countries particularly, to accept that their horizons of possibility are things that they will have to temper and tone down. But this will have implications for their status in terms of wealth and power and standing consequently within international politics right so the relationship between wealth and power which is one of the straightforward kind of um, arguments which comes out of realism in some way is also very important to understand why is it that some of the bigger developing countries might have qualms about the kinds of climate change regimes that are coming out. Now, that's not to say that they don't want to cooperate, but it's always about under what conditions, under what kinds of, uh, you know, arrangements will they sign up to various kinds of stronger, more binding obligations to deal with climate change, so to speak. <clears throat> the third and last, you know, conceptual kind of point I want to make is about ethics. Now, ethics is in some ways a perspective which is as I said, we often think of it as something which is extraneous to international politics. International politics is all about power. Ethics is about various kinds of judgments that people standing outside that game make. And in the week that we discussed ethics, I pointed out to you that that is a very reductive and wrong way of thinking about ethics. That all of us, including leaders on of various countries and people who make decisions uh, in international politics, are by their own self-conception at least some kind of ethical agents and in some ways ethical arguments are embedded into our day-to-day -day vocabulary and the way that we think about ordinary situations and the way that we act and talk about them we all don't need to be moral theorists 
but we have certain sense of fairness and justice and conceptions of what is ethically acceptable and not acceptable built even into our ordinary language and our capacity for evaluating situations around us now this particular uh, you know point comes through very clearly when we look at the argument say for you know common but differentiated responsibility as i said that argument comes out of a historical uh, kind of responsibility but fundamentally it's an ethical argument it says that those who are responsible for the situation also have to take that responsibility in order to deal with the consequences of it and to help others those who are weaker to be able to deal with it right and you have an interesting paper this week by henry shu it's actually one of the earliest kind of pieces of writing about international environmental ethics so to speak and uh, shu basically talks about various kinds of justifications of unequal burdens uh, which are intended to reduce or eliminate uh, you know various kinds of inequalities in the international uh, climate change system right he says what are the arguments for saying that the more developed countries in some ways should bear uh, the cost and he says that the arguments are effectively various kinds of ethical arguments and he works through three different justifications and then comes to this conclusion that yes indeed the developed countries um, should be willing uh, to bear the ethical responsibility in order to do this and i think that's an important perspective as well uh, which is to say and taking all of this together you know it just reminds us that every serious problem of international politics effectively has dimensions of power but also has dimensions of ethics it has the problems of anarchy but also the requirements of cooperation so there is potential for conflict yet there is a requirement for cooperation uh, you know for instance one of the sad things about climate change is that some of the most vulnerable countries to climate change uh, say like the island states uh, in or a country like bangladesh for instance you know which are most vulnerable also have the least capacity in some ways to adapt to climate change which means that they need various kinds of financial and technological transfers to come from the advanced world so there again those arguments have to be placed both on the level of pragmatism which is to say that we are in this together either we sink or swim together on alternatively in the language of global justice which is to say that it is only just that those who created and benefited from the situation should help the rest of us deal with it right so arguments about power and arguments about ethics considerations of you know when to cooperate and when not and how to think about the problem of cooperation under all of these conditions is something that climate change really brings to the fore which is what makes it such a fascinating and in some ways such an important and difficult problem for international politics to uh, come to grips with so that so much for climate change uh, please do um, go over your readings once again again uh, i understand some of the readings may be a bit more challenging uh, for you but uh, do not get bogged down in the details try and get the gist of the main argument uh, hopefully i have given you enough today to get a broad sense of what are the kinds of issues in play you can discuss the readings themselves a little further in your discussion sections now with this week's class effectively we've covered four issues of contemporary international politics which are of importance to us 
these are the four issues that you will be asked to choose and write about when it comes to your take home end of semester examination so please use your uh, discussion sections in the coming week as well as the week after to uh, prepare for that particular thing now next week i will just be putting up a podcast on covid and its impact on international politics um, that's something that is for you to think about and hopefully when we reconvene on campus in perhaps what is going to be the next semester then we will have an opportunity to carry on this conversation uh, in other venues uh, but for today uh, do please um, get back to the readings and get a grip on this particular issue I've said it in the past and I just want to reiterate that please do feel free to reach out uh, to me if you want to talk about anything, whether it's your assignment, classes, anything else. Uh, quite a few of you have reached out to me and it's been good. Uh, and I'd encourage anyone who uh, feels that they need to uh, have a discussion about anything, whether it pertains to the course or IR or things more generally, uh, just drop me a line. I will share a time and a number when we can connect and talk to each other so uh see you next week take care and stay safe